Good morning, everybody. We'll go ahead and get started as a few people uh, trickle in. I want to make sure I, we have enough time this morning and I don't keep you too late. Um, let's pray together and uh, we'll get started, all right? Father, we are grateful to be together on another Lord's Day, to um, see one another's faces, to fellowship, to uh, encourage one another in Christ, and to uh, worship you together. And Lord, we want to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And uh, we want to do theology and think about theology in a way that would honor you and um, create in us um, the right responses to the, to you. And so, Lord, would you help us this morning to glorify you um, in this time together as we think about what you've revealed in your word and how to handle your word faithfully and rightly? And um, would you give us your instruction today through your spirit? Would you be our teacher? And would you... Um, would you incline our hearts uh, to your testimonies and to all that you have revealed and to run in the way of your commandments, as the psalmist said. So Lord, help us to help us to respond that way for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're going to pick up a little bit where we left off last week um, with theological priorities. And so this week, um, what I want us to do is we're going to talk about the second half of this subject. Um, last week, we covered... Uh, some of the biblical basis for thinking about theological priorities are, is all theology the same or all doctrines the same? Um, I made the, I tried to make a biblical case that that's not the case. And the Bible itself actually shows that there are weightier matters than others. And so that leads us into a way of thinking. We have to come up with some sort of framework by which we can operate in terms of theological priorities. What, how are we going to practically work this out? If, if not all doctrine is created equal, then, then how do we think it through? And so I, I proposed one practical framework last week in terms of theological triage, first level matters, second level matters, third level matters. Um, and so we'll review those briefly before we get into the new content. But um, this week, we're going to be looking at the guiding principles for theological priorities. In other words, what what are the guiding principles that help shape our understanding of that pyramid, right? Because if not, it sounds like that pyramid just kind of came out of nowhere. It's like, well, Pastor Mark, it's nice that you think in that way, but what is guiding your thinking in terms of putting things where you put them in the pyramid? So we're going to talk a little bit more of the, the why questions that are underneath the, the what of the pyramid. And then talk about, finally, some necessary reasons for why we need theological priorities and what, what will happen if we don't have theological priorities. Let me give you an example of Charles Simeon. There's Charles looking good, sitting there in the chair with his pen in his hand. He had to hold that pose for quite a while, I'm sure. Um, Charles Simeon was a well-known pastor who lived from 1759 to 1836, and he devoted 54 years of ministry to Cambridge University and Holy Trinity Church, and those were not 50 easy years. If you read a Charles Simeon biography, I think John Piper did a one, I, some of you are familiar with his annual um, biographical talks that he gave. He gave one of them on, on Charles Simeon, which is worth looking up. But uh, he had decades of public criticism in his ministry and constant opposition, but he persevered. And he gave pastoral guidance to um, the influential group of evangelicals in England known as the Clapham sect, which included Hannah Moore and William Wilberforce, who were leaders that were largely responsible for bringing slavery to an end in England. 
And Simeon was behind a lot of that theologically in terms of William Wilberforce was kind of on the front lines, you know, doing it in Parliament as a politician. But again, Simeon was there um, helping him along the way. So um, one of the things that he did consistently was he tried to train young men in preaching. And he said, he said, my endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there, Simeon wrote, and not to thrust in it what I might think might be there. I have a great jealousy on this particular topic, never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage I am teaching on. So he was always kind of rigidly committed to what the Scripture said. But um, during his lifetime, there was a huge debate, as there usually is in church history, between Calvinists and Arminians. But Simeon, though he was doctrinally more Calvinistic, he expressed his desire to make Bible Christians what he called Bible Christians and not system Christians. By system Christians, he means he didn't want people just to be Calvinistic because they embraced the theology of Calvinism. He wanted them to be Bible Christians. He wanted them to be persuaded by the Scriptures. Here's what he said about that. Uh, his, one of his autobiographers, Chris Armstrong, said, he recognized in the Bible certain paradoxes and antinomies that simply could not and must not be reconciled. We can eliminate neither divine sovereignty nor human responsibility, he insisted, since the Bible teaches both. For Simeon, it was not one extreme we are to go to, but both extremes. Simeon acted as a barrier-crossing and bridge-building figure at a crucial moment in the church's history. So Simeon wrote, The truth is not in the middle and not in one extreme, but in both extremes. So his choice to set Scripture above systems, even the one to which he held, wasn't motivated by personal comfort or the desire to never offend anyone. He willingly endured constant ridicule and social ostracism in a period of English history marked by hard-heartedness toward the gospel. Here's what one person said about that. He said, It would have been easier if, if Simeon were one-directional to fall into the trap of cultivating just one segment of his community that would applaud his efforts and stances and yet remain safely ensconced from, an, from any serious critique from his pulpit. Instead, when he discovered texts that appeared to be in tension, Simeon asked, quote, Why must these things be put in opposition to each other so that every advocate for one of these points must of necessity con controvert and exploit, explode the other? Simeon recognized vital truths in Scripture and clung to them tenaciously, allowing truth's power to have its full effect, no matter what categories might be crossed or what might be troubled. He said, Complementary truths are like the wheels in a clock, apparently moving in opposite directions. That's not opposite directions, is it? How's that go? That's hard to do. There you go. But go together. So we have strong truths which we must affirm with all our might, even though they don't always make sense in our brains. So I think this is an, a model for us of how to think through theology, right? He was committed to trying to doctrinally prioritize things, but to do so in a way that was clearly revealed in Scripture and hold truths in tension that sometimes in our minds don't seem to fit, but Scripture reveals and we trust God with the mystery. Now, um, doing theology means, doing theology well means that we have to grapple with things that Simeon grappled with, that we have to grapple with the tensions that exist in Scripture. And by tension, I don't mean awkward, frustrated, angry emotion between two individuals. That's a result of sin. 
But what I'm talking about is the mental and emotional discomfort that we feel in our minds when we try to reconcile two truths which seem to be mutually exclusive. In other words, tension involves holding truths together which appear to be contradictory on the surface. And of course, the Bible's full of things like this. The Trinity. Right? Who can know the mysteries of the Trinity, right? If we try to solve the mysteries of the Trinity, we will commit some sort of heresy in church history. So we have to hold truths in tension. God is one nature, yet eternally existing in three persons. The inspiration of the Bible is attention, right? We have human authorship coupled with divine inspiration. And we know that that inspiration wasn't robotic, but it was the Holy Spirit inspiring the writers to write exactly what God wanted without error, but nevertheless through the human agency and human personality of the individual writer, which means John doesn't sound like Paul, doesn't sound like Peter. Because even though they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're still them. But that's a mystery. That's a tension we have to hold. What about even salvation? Right? Don't you experience tension in the Christian life? I do. Think about this. When you, when you commit sin and you know because of the doctrine of justification that you are freed from the penalty of your sin and nevertheless, in that moment, you feel like you're still under the power of sin even though Bible, the Bible tells you you're not under the power of sin. And you know that one day, because of glorification, you're going to be freed from the presence of sin But right now we live in the midst of this, okay, freed from the penalty, freed from the power, still with the presence. That's a tension that we experience even in salvation. What about engagement with the world, right? We're in the world, but we're not of it. Well, that requires some tension because we're not to totally separate ourselves, but neither are we totally to be immersed. Relationship with others, right? When we interact with each other, we know that we're relating to and redeemed image bearer who's still fallen, right? And so we expect righteousness and sin. If we're, if we're interacting with an unbeliever, we know that even though they may not be a believer, they're still in the image of God. There's still goodness there. There's still common grace there. But nevertheless, they're fallen, and so we see evil as well. And even in our relationship with God, we talked about this a little bit with Simeon, but um, you know, human responsibility and divine sovereignty, right? We, we're called to... We've talked about this in our first lesson, you know, when Paul said, think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Well, which is it? Do we have to exercise responsibility to think theologically or does God give it to us? Yes. Through our thinking, God gives. So there's human responsibility and divine sovereignty at work. Life in the kingdom, right? We live in the what theologians call the already and not yet, that the kingdom has already come, but the kingdom has not come in fullness. So we see people getting saved. We see evidence of God's activity in the world. But nevertheless, the kingdom has not come in fullness. So we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we can respond in different ways um, to this tension. Sometimes uh, some of us can struggle with theological precision because we fail to embrace the tension that God himself has created. And it just feels simpler in our minds to kind of default to one side or the other. And we have to be careful of that. Our tendency might be to figure out which truth we prefer and just default to it or sort of reject or at least ignore, perhaps even resent the other one. So in a sense, due to our natural and fallen wiring, personal experiences and cultural conditioning, we're more naturally drawn to one truth over another. But we must not reject the tension or let it get to us and become emotionally distraught over it. If both truths are biblical and the Bible requires that we hold these truths in tension, 
We must let God be true and every man, including ourselves, a liar. We need to humbly embrace the mystery and not attempt to solve it logically or succumb to an inward throwing up of the hands like, well, I'm just never going to be able to figure this out. You know, We just need to embrace the fact that God is God, that we are not, that His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And this doesn't mean we don't live with clarity, right? That was just kind of this ambiguity. We don't really know what we believe. Well, God's kind of a mystery. No, we're not saying that. We're saying God has clearly spoken here and God has clearly spoken here. And I can't in my mind put them together, but God's true. And both of those things are true, right? Even though we may not be able to make sense of them altogether in our brains. So theological precision and priorities doesn't always require both and thinking. Sometimes scripture does point to either or. Like this is, you know, Jesus Christ is born of God or not. You know, that's not a both and, you know. Um, but, but, uh, there are plenty of either ors in scripture, but a lot of theolo- theology is rooted in this both and kind of way of thinking. Yes, both are true. Yes, I don't know how they all fit together, but both are true. So when Scripture calls us to take sides, we take sides. But when Scripture calls us not to take sides, we don't. We need to let the Bible tell us when we're to be both and and when we're to be either or. Here's what Ian Murray says about that. It's not our business to explain the unexplainable. Where the Scripture sees no contradictions in its statements, it's not our responsibility to answer objections that may be raised. Much error has come about through attempts to offer explanations. It ought to be enough to stand by what Scripture asserts. We are to be humble before the conviction that God's thoughts are far above our own. Truths that look contradictory to us are not so in the light of heaven. And there we will not see through a glass darkly, but face to face. Praise the Lord for that. So here was our framework last week that we considered um, for theological triage. Um, We talked about the first level being salvation matters, the second level being church matters and the third level being disputable matters, or what we might call preferences. And this was the diagram I was trying to describe for us last week as we were walking through that. The first level would be those doctrines that are essential to Christianity. They are the ones that separate Christians from non-Christians. The second level would separate churches from each other. There are reasonable boundaries surrounding the nature and authority of the church. And then the minor disagreements would be Christians can disagree within the same church over issues that are in the third category. And we see the, 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 as the pyramid, the pyramid's a good illustration because more of the issues are in the third category than in the first category. And so here's a summary of what we, what we talked about last week, just seeing that the first level doctrines are essential to the gospel itself. So what you have along the top is first, second, and third level and then the importance, the impact, and the influence of those different levels. Um, So you've got the first level, essential doctrines for salvation. They're separating Christians from non-Christians, and it requires us to be courageous and convictional about those things. The second level doctrines are urgent for the health and practice of the church. They separate churches from other churches. There's wisdom and balance needed in those things. And then the third level doctrines are either important to theology, but not enough to justify division among Christians, or unimportant to our gospel witness or ministry collaboration, and therefore can exist within the same congregation. And they offer the saints a chance to grow in love for one another. They require humility and restraint on our part. So before we get into guiding principles for theological prioritization, any questions or thoughts, feedback on that? We'll come to John first, or Jim, you you shot your hand. I'm going to go to John first, then I'm going to go to you, Jim, just because. Go ahead, John. 
would you say there's a difference between actually knowing what the Bible teaches and rejecting it? And yes. A new believer who isn't doesn't have clarity on the essentials? Absolutely. Yeah, I think we agree on that. Explain kind of what you're getting at, because I think that's an important point you're making. Yeah, just that there's a, well, are you being recorded? Maybe you can... Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, John's, what John's getting at is there is a difference between someone not fully understanding something and someone rejecting something. And we need to be, there. we're all in process, but especially younger believers, we don't need to immediately jump to the conclusion that they're rejecting a doctrine when they just don't understand a doctrine. So we need to be very patient with people. It, it, we don't write people off as heretics quickly. That didn't, that, that, in the most healthy periods of church history, they took years to solve theological debates because they wanted to listen well and make sure that their rejection of the doctrine wasn't because they just misunderstood it. So, um, we need to be patient with people, but it's clear, like, what we're getting at here is people, in terms of essential matters to salvation, Somebody may on the surface not understand how Jesus can be fully God and fully man or truly God and truly man. And nevertheless, if they don't reject it, they shouldn't be discounted, right? It's one thing to know it accurately and say, that is not true. It's another thing to say, I don't understand that. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, that's a good point. We need to double underline, highlight, circle that. Jim? I was uh, thinking, I think I brought the passage up last week from Romans 9, but when you were talking about when you said we do not need to try to explain the unexplainable. Ian Murray said that, but he said it really well. Go well, ahead. Yeah, you quoted it. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, that's what I think of again. It brings me back to Romans 9 when Paul, when somebody questioned, Paul raised this uh, rhetorical question when he was talking about God's sovereignty and salvation. Yep. Yeah, the human logical objection. Right, because, because if I can't, if he made me like this, it's not my fault. Yeah, yeah. And Paul, I mean, and Paul, he set the example right there. He yeah. didn't try to explain it. Good point. He just yeah. said, who, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Yeah. He didn't, I, I said this last week, I think he didn't try to defend God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we yeah. find ourselves trying to do that sometimes for somebody who has those questions. You know, we, yeah. we find ourselves, we put ourselves in a position where we're, we're trying to defend it. So we... There's, there's a proverb that says, what does it say? Um, answer a fool according to his folly, and then it says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. There's a tension. Right? Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly a tension. Yeah. But, I, but if you understand what they're getting at, there's a time and a place where you deal with them according to, you show him for his folly. Yep. But then there's, but you don't go down to his level. Yeah. When you do it. Yeah, you have to know, is this going to make me a fool in the process? Right. <laughs> yeah, good. Good. Yeah, that's a great, Romans 9, I didn't think about that. That's a great illustration of Paul just saying, look, this far and no further, right? This is how much God has spoken on the matter. I'm not going to extrapolate and pontificate and think through, oh, this is probably why God did it. No, he just said, you know, God, uh, who are you to answer back to God? This is the way God set it up. So, yeah. Um, so let's talk about some guiding principles then that inform that pyramid um, and how we put the framework together. And I want to talk about three main areas in my mind, and, and I hope if you have others, I'd love to hear them um, as we go along here. But where an issue falls within these three categories of, you know, minor disagreements, reasonable boundaries, essential to Christianity, uh, the three, two, one uh, pyramid, where an issue falls in those categories should be determined by weighing the cumulative force of at least these three areas. Okay. I don't claim any 
uh, secret knowledge or divine revelation here as far as these three areas go. But in my mind, these are three key areas that should inform and shape our understanding of where things go in terms of theological priority. And we need to take them as a cumulative force. We need to take them all into consideration as we bring doctrine to bear uh, for these each of these categories. So there's the Bible test, there's the history test, and then what I'm calling the impact test. All right, so let's talk about the Bible test first. Here's the question I'm getting at. How clearly is this doctrine taught in the Bible? How frequently is this doctrine mentioned in Scripture? And what is the weight that Scripture puts on it? So I think those three, when I'm talking about the Bible test, I'm not just talking about how many verses are on it. Okay, because if you think about it, think about this. In the book of Romans, Paul has more verses on third-level issues than he does on first-level issues. In a lot. Now, if you think chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, he's especially chapter 14, I mean, it's a big chapter, and he, he, he spills a lot of ink talking about how Christians are to relate to each other on third-level issues. But when he comes to the gospel in chapter 3, it's like a paragraph. Right now, he talks about the gospel in chapter 4 and chapter 5, even the implications of sanctification in 6, 7, and 8. But I'm just talking about just, that's a lot of verses, right, in, on, on that particular topic. And I think about that sometimes as I'm reading the letters of Paul, like what he chose to focus on. Obviously, he's taking into account what that church needs, and if they need more instruction on the gospel, he's going to give it to them. But if they need more instruction on other things, he'll give it to them then. But just because we have a lot of verses on something doesn't mean it's not weighty in Scripture. Right? Because we could say there's not a whole lot of verses on the Trinity per se, like the Trinity as described, but it's all over the Bible. The Trini Trinitarian framework is all over the Bible. So, again, it's not just the number of verses we're looking at here. It's, it's how clearly is this doctrine taught from the entirety of Scripture, how frequently is it mentioned, and what weight does Scripture put on that? particular doctrine. Um, like, you know, as we've seen previously, like even in Jesus' ministry, as you see people interacting with him about theology and theological questions, there are certain things that he gives a whole lot of weight to, and there are certain things he doesn't. Like, so for instance, when they come and have questions to him about the Sabbath, it's not that Jesus doesn't take the Sabbath seriously. He doesn't take the way they're approaching the Sabbath seriously. They put too much weight on certain areas of Sabbath keeping that Jesus never would. So like, what are you talking about? You can't get your ox out of the ditch. Or what are you talking about? You can't, you know, pick heads of grain or whatever. He, he's not, he's like, you have made a mountain out of a molehill here. So he would obviously have, he would say, even though the Sabbath is a big issue in the old covenant, it's a big issue in the Bible. Nevertheless, you guys have taken it way out of step here. But then other people coming to him and saying, you know, um, you know, for instance, like with the Pharisees and the way they're interacting with people, unforgiveness for Jesus is a big deal. And the fact that they're withholding grace from people or withholding forgiveness from people, I mean, he, he, he's strong with them on that and he calls them out for things like that. So again, Scripture would put a ton of weight on that versus less weight on the other thing. So again, it's just we have to take the whole Bible into consideration here and, and where these things land in terms of, of our own thinking on, on, on uh, particular doctrines. So any thoughts or questions about that? Yeah, Dwayne. Paul sort of embracing Romans as your example, which kind of proves what you're saying we should be doing. 
essential primary issues that it is the way it is. Mm -hmm. Trinity, uh, salvation versus uh, justification and negative possibility. Yeah. That's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Third level issues require a lot more explanation, a lot more thought process. Yeah. 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 Well, good. Yeah, that's 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 what I think. I, I think he's I think we see that in the letters. We see him addressing things theologically. He's always doing it from the standpoint of theology, but he's doing it in terms of the serious right. So just a couple of examples. You know, if you think about Galatians, he comes out of he comes at the Galatians both guns blazing, right? Because it's a gospel first level issue. And they are they are they are they are operating in a realm that's threatening justification by faith alone. They're operating in a realm that's introducing mosaic covenant keeping into justification and he's not going to have any of it. So he says, you know, if an angel comes and preaches to you a different gospel than the one I declare to you, let that angel be accursed. That is a crazy statement. I mean, that is, I mean, you're talking about a sinless, perfect servant of God made by him, not fallen, but comes to you and preaches a gospel contrary to the one that I preached to you. Let him be accursed. Let him go to hell. Let that angel be fallen. It's because that's how strongly Paul is convinced, and I think rightly by the Holy Spirit, that his gospel was right. And so, um, so yeah, it's a first-level issue. He's going to deal with it strongly. But then you get to issues, say, um, around you know First Thessalonians when he's trying to encourage believers that they don't necessarily they don't know what's happened to other believers or whether they've died or whether they've you know of course they've died, but whether they're with the Lord or not. And he just says, "Listen, here's the teaching. Now just encourage one another with these words. You know, remind each other of these things." He doesn't come out both guns. What you don't believe that. Believers are with Jesus. I mean, what, are you crazy? Um, so again, he he has different pastoral approaches in terms of the way he handles uh, people's doctrinal controversies and errors, and even in Corinthians, which is we're getting ready to start, Lord willing, in January, and you just see he's really really strong on certain issues. Man's got a his stepmother in a sexual relationship. That's put him out of the church. Uh, you guys are all mixed up about spiritual gifts. Okay, let me take three chapters and explain it. So again, even his pastoral approaches with all their issues are tempered differently, you know? And so it's, it's, it's determined by the weight in which he puts the seriousness of how, how serious those particular issues are, um, in terms of the church's witness, the threat to the gospel, those sorts of things. So, all right. The history test, secondly, um, is seeking to answer this question. What have Christians thought about this doctrine in the past and present? All right. Now, here's a here's an important um, uh, an important point to make. I think generally, um, as Protestants, with our with our emphasis on sola scriptura, scripture alone, you know that scripture is our final decisive interpreter of all things, which it is absolutely. Um, but in some ways, and I don't think our church has particularly done this, but in some ways, we can we can unduly appreciate the testimony of the church down through the age about specific issues. Um, so obviously, tradition and history doesn't trump our interpretation of Scripture or doesn't, but it should inform it and it should guide us because most of the issues that we have wrestled with um, 
you know, in church history, even that we're wrestling with today, have been wrestled with by Christians in times past. So we need to take what they've written and their perspectives into account as in as much as they've written on him. I thought it was cool. I got a book in the mail a couple of weeks ago um, uh, where Westminster Seminary had compiled a group of essays of Christians writing on how the church responded in times of plague in the past. It's called Faith in Times of Plague. And it, it was really interesting just reading. It's like, wow, we're dealing with some of this stuff today, even though it's not, we're, I know our pandemic is not at the level of the plague of some of the, that they were dealing with. But at the same time, seeing a worldwide health issue break out and how Christians in the churches responded, it was really interesting to read that stuff. So we're not the first generation that's ever faced anything like that or political turmoil or um, cultural decay, right? Like we need to be spending a lot of time in the second century right now because of the way the church, the, the, the world is, uh, the United States is going. So second century is going to teach us a ton about how to respond in our cultural moment. And, um, and uh, I've been dipping back a little bit into that. And uh, Pastor Thad's planning to teach in March kind of an intro to church history and uh, kind of walking century by century and just giving us co- sort of the high points. And uh, pay attention during the second century because it's, it's really interesting about how, you know, you're, you're in the midst of the fall of Rome, um, immorality's on the rise, um, uh, there's, there's all kinds of moral decay, and yet and the church is being kind of ostracized and marginalized and kind of shut out from the convert public conversation and how the church responds to all that. And it's just, it's just really interesting things to read. So we can, we can learn and we should learn from what our brothers and sisters have um, taught us in the past. Anybody have thoughts on that yourselves relating to how we think about church history, doctrine, things like that? Any thoughts from you guys on that? Yeah, Derek, you got something? And then Donna. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. And that's just taking a humble posture that believes the Holy Spirit was at work right before before our time and recognizing that. Miss Donna, did you have something you want to say? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, I I take some comfort from the from the New Testament itself that even the most precious things in the Bible were debated. Even the most, I mean, the essential things. You think about just 1 John. 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, he's wrestling with who Jesus is and trying to help correct against false teaching about who Jesus is. And so I was thinking, wow, early on, even while the apostles were still living, they're having to wrestle with the core issue of our faith. Who is Jesus Christ? And then, of course, um, I think as you... I think as you look at church history, this is this is probably an overgeneralization, but I was at least helped by it. Um, in seminary, Pastor Sam Waldron had us read a book called The Progress of Doctrine. It was called Dogma, but that's an old old term for doctrine. Progress of Doctrine. I was like, it's an old book. I was like, Progress of Doctrine? What in the world? And But it was great. I, I read, and basically what that particular book lays out is it shows throughout church history how theology developed in the sense of crystallizing around creeds and confessions. And it, it starts with the most essential things, like the most essential things, like, like Donna's saying, really did get crystallized right in those early centuries of the church. Now, not everything got solved, but, you know, who is God? What is the Bible? You know, um, who's Jesus? Who's the Holy Spirit? So the person of God, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Scripture kind of got, got solidified. And then as you go through the later centuries of the church, you begin to get into issues of there, 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 there's, there's all this confusion and um, disagreement and breakdown in terms of the understanding of salvation, especially in medieval theology, you know, during the Middle Ages. And so that's what initiates, I think, under God and sparks the Protestant Reformation is a recovery of what was lost through those through those periods of the church, at least was being, I'm, I know there were genuine converts during those. I know the gospel was still around, but it wasn't as clear. And it, it started getting more and more muddied and unclear. And so the reformers started writing more clearly on it. And then as you get later in church history, you know, post-reformation, you start to get into other issues related to ecclesiology and the church. And of course, then you have, you know, Baptists spin out, you know, from, from that period and and then, you know, what's the last 100, 150 years been? Issues of eschatology and end times and all this debate about some of that. So the, the point of that particular work is try to show that church history kind of unfolds like a systematic theology textbook a little bit, where these doctrinal controversies begin getting spoken into and doctrine begins getting a little bit more clearer around those issues. It doesn't mean they always got everything right or that everything was, but they were at least wrestling with those sorts of things. So I, I don't know, I was encouraged by that and thought, wow, well, yeah, throughout the church history, this is being an issue that's being attacked. Yeah, go ahead. Um, well, I think that we kind of do that when we, I think without realizing it, I use church history in my mind, at least in ways when I think about something that comes out, a doctrine that when you read up on it, says that, you know, it was developed like 200 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And automatically, I think right there, that means for, you know, 1,800, 1,600 years before that, in church history, nobody believed this. Yeah. Which makes me tend to believe that doctrine's probably false. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not, because because I'm, I'm not looking at that point, I'm not using, I don't see it in the scripture, obviously. Right. If I did, that would be, but then on top of that, I realized this wasn't even a doctrine. 
until about or a teaching or an interpretation or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I don't know if this is true. You can help me with this, but the eschatology and some of the things about it. So I've read some things where it says that some of the beliefs, like um, and, and I don't know if that's true because I thought they did believe. Didn't they believe in pre-tribulational rapture even in the early church, or did they not? I read some there, one time that was a yeah. Yeah, there was definitely there was definitely a yeah. It's 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 real. You try to read eschatology in the early church. It's it it can be confusing. It can be. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But as far as a pre-tribulational rapture, I read somewhere. Yeah, that could very well be the case, Jim. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. 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 That would give you pause. Yeah. Yeah. It should at least give us pause for sure. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Donna. No, it's fine. Go ahead. Yeah. Good question. Good question. I would say I don't think I have all the answers. <laughs> But I do think that overall, we can consider church history and get the answers, right? We can, we can see, especially where Christians were united on key things. And I think that gives us, my goodness, 95% of things. I mean, granted, you say baptism was debated. Of course, it's still debated. <laughs> it's been debated throughout church history, and it's never been definitively resolved. And, and there's different people that take different positions on that related to church history. But you know, we don't put it in a first level issue. So I would say the essential matters, those first level issues, church has spoken very, very clearly about throughout church history. And I don't, there's not a, there's not a ton of debate about those things. Now, granted, there were periods of the church in which those were more or less lost, but nonetheless, I think God by his spirit recovered the truth and kept it going forward. So through faithful brothers and sisters of times past. So let's keep moving. The impact test. By this, I mean, we're taking it out of the Bible and history, and we're just asking, what effect does this doctrine have practically on other doctrines and Christian faith and church practice? Right? So that's just more the practical question. So if this doctrine is not embraced, what impact would that have on other issues? And, um, and I think this is an important question to ask because doctrine has in our minds, has to work this way because we're, we, we can't just silo things out. Like, well, I believe this about Jesus, but it doesn't affect anything else. No, depending on what that is that we believe about Jesus, it will affect those things that we think about everything else. So the point is, is that all the categories together, you've got the impact, the history, the Bible, Start with the Bible. Bible, history, and then impact. I put them in that order because I think that's the order of importance. Bible, history, and impact. All the categories should be considered collectively in determining how important an issue is to the Christian faith. And so um, let's get into some necessary reasons to conclude here. Um, why is this practice essential? Why is this practice for, of theological prioritization essential for the Christian life? Martin Luther said, softness and hardness are the two main faults from which all mistakes in theology come. Either being too soft on the really important things or too hard on the non-important things. Being too soft would be an example like theological liberalism. And the misjudgment of liberalism was the refusal to admit 
that first-order theological issues even exist. Liberals treat first-order doctrines as if they were merely third-order in importance, and therefore doctrinal ambiguity is the inevitable result. But then you have theological legalism, which is the belief that all disagreements concern first-order doctrines, and thus third-order issues are raised to first-order importance, and Christians are wrongfully and harmfully divided, softness and hardness. So a faithful ministry then encourages and warns, strengthens and refutes, builds up and tears down. So responding to liberalism requires what Paul did. I think Pastor Keith mentioned this last week. You know, when he saw people teaching things they ought not to teach, we should rebuke them sharply so that they'd be sound in the faith, right? These are first level issues. They need to be rebuked about those things. But then, and, and again, and Paul in Titus 1.9 says that an elder must hold to the faithful messages taught so that he'll be able to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. But then you have, of course, unbiblical and unfaithful. All of us are unbiblical and unfaithful to some extent, unless we want to say that our doctrine is perfect. And this is why Tom Schreiner gives us the following warning about not just treating every doctrine as equal. He says, beware of charging that someone is outside the bounds of orthodoxy Orthodoxy, when in fact the only issue is that they disagree with you. We need to be vigilant for the truth and to defend the faith. At the same time, we need to be careful about drawing lines too tightly and to be aware of pulling out the heresy card charged too quickly. We need to ask ourselves if the brother or sister simply disagrees with us and with our theology. So we might call this what Jesus calls it, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now we know that the Pharisees and Sadducees were both religious groups within Judaism during the time of Christ. Both groups honored Moses and the law, and they both had a measure of political power. The differences, though, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees are known to us through a couple of passages of Scripture. For instance, the clearest doctrinal position that Jesus rebuked the Sadducees for was their denial of the resurrection of the dead. And the clearest doctrinal position that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for was their allegiance to man-made doctrines above the teachings of Scripture. He said, you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. He said that to them over and over and over again. So we get the Sadducees kind of playing a little fast and loose with Scripture, and we get the Pharisees playing fast and loose with Scripture in a different way, adding to it. And so why the different positions between the Sadducees and Pharisees? Well, it's in part owing to the social respect each group desired. Socially, the Sadducees were more elitist and aristocratic than the Pharisees. Sadducees tended to be wealthy and to hold more powerful positions. The chief priests and the high priests were Sadducees, and they held the major seats in the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees were friendlier with Rome and more accommodating to the Roman laws than the Pharisees were. The Pharisees often resisted Hellenization, which is you know the Greek influence in their culture, especially in Jerusalem but the Sadducees welcomed it. And so Jesus had run-ins with the Pharisees, more run-ins with the Pharisees than the Sadducees, probably because the Sadducees were often more concerned with politics than religion. And you see the, the, the Sadducees start to exercise more influence on Jesus when he threatens sort of the social order. And the Pharisees get a little bit triggered at Jesus when he starts to threaten the religious order that they were trying to uphold. So they ignored Jesus, that is the Sadducees, until they began to fear he might bring unwanted attention and upset the status quo in the Roman Roman world. It was at that point that the Sadducees and Pharisees set aside their differences and united and conspired to put Christ to death. Now, um, Sadduceeism is, in my mind, the danger of doctrinal minimalism. 
Churches will not faithfully survive if we tolerate false gospels, sinful practice, and deny the resurrection or the full humanity and deity of Jesus. And there's just some New Testament texts. And just because something isn't essential and primary doesn't mean it isn't urgent or important. Doctrines can be secondary and non-essential to the gospel and yet still make a difference on how we uphold the gospel. The doctrines we hold are not independent silos. They do interpenetrate one another. So an errant overcommitment to a secondary or third-level doctrine can lead to errors in a primary doctrine if we're not careful. Phariseeism is the danger of doctrinal sectarianism or maximalism. Churches will not survive if they cannot maintain unity and heed the apostolic commands regarding willingness to tolerate errors on lesser matters, Romans 14. The inability to distinguish between different kinds of doctrine contributes to unnecessary division within the body of Christ and undermines the unity of the church. Doctrinal sectarianism extends fundamentals more widely than is right or just, turns almost every error into a heresy, and makes necessary those things that are indifferent. For instance, speaking in tongues as a sign of salvation or KJV-only thinking. The way we hold our doctrine is as important as the doctrine we hold. In fact, the way we hold our doctrine is itself one of the doctrines we hold. Right? We, As Paul says in 2 Timothy, one of the doctrines we have is to teach with patience and deal gently with our opponents and not to eviscerate them when they say something we don't particularly like. So the ability to rightly discern the differences between core doctrine and legitimately disputable matters will keep the church either from compromising important truth or needlessly dividing over peripheral issues. And here's my concluding quote on that. Anyone who has been in church knows such love is not as easy as it sounds. Like sheep, we are easily frightened, easily flustered, easily separated. And thus, it requires the Spirit's work to bring unity to us. And part of that process is teaching God's children that not every doctrine weighs the same. Indeed, until local churches learn how to triage their doctrines, they will constantly divide when they don't need to and unite when they shouldn't. May God be pleased to lead us into all truth and to give us grace to walk together in that truth. May He enable us to do so. Amen. We're dismissed.